Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Luke chapter 6. I'm going to do verses 12 through 16 in Luke chapter 6, which is the story of Jesus selecting his 12 apostles after a night of prayer. It's just five verses. However, there's a lot of stuff about who these disciples are, and so we're going to have just this one topic in this audio. In the next audio, we'll take up the Sermon on the Mount. And since I've already discussed these 12 apostles and their selection by Jesus in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 19, I'm going to splice my discussion of that in this audio. And that splice of Mark 3, verses 13 through 19 begins now. I'm in Mark chapter 3. Last audio, we took up the first 12 verses where Jesus healed the man with the withered hand in the synagogue. So we'll start with Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 19. With this first incident, there's only one parallel section in Luke 6, 12 through 16, so we'll compare those two passages as we go through. Mark chapter 3, verse 13 says this, Then he, Jesus, went up the mountain and summoned those he wanted, and they came to him. This is the summoning of the twelve. We see in Luke 6, verse 12, During those days he went out to the mountain to pray and spent all night in prayer to God. So, Jesus is about to do probably the most important thing he did before the cross. He's choosing the men who would carry on what he had done after he died so that the work of Jesus would extend through the whole world. Now, this is an important task, and Luke tells us that Jesus prayed all night before choosing those apostles, all night in prayer. And remember, this was after a day of healing people all day, as John Gill points out. Notice that Mark says that Jesus summoned those he wanted Jesus chose his disciples, not vice versa. As we know from the other passages, when Jesus chose disciples, he chose them. They didn't choose him. And he chose them not according to the disciples' merits, as John Gill points out. I mean, after all, Peter denied him three times. Never did understand. Uh, Jesus had to one time say, get behind me, Satan, cause Jesus, because Peter wouldn't go along with Jesus' idea of fulfilling his mission by dying on the cross. We got James and John wanting to call down fire on, on an unbelieving village. We had Judas who betrayed him. So this was a serious thing. And a lot of people ask, well, why, if he prayed all day, why did he come up with disciples like that? Well, we know most of them were redeemed. James and John, of course, ended up being great leaders in the church. And so did Peter. Judas, of course, betrayed him. But that was predestined from before the foundation of the world so that Jesus could die for the sins of the world. So it's not like God, it's not like Jesus didn't hear God when he chose those disciples. One time a man once asked a theologian, why did Jesus choose Judas Iscariot to be his disciple? The teacher replied, I don't know, but I have an even harder question. Why did Jesus choose me? I suppose this illustrates the very profound point that a lot of times you ask, you pray, and you pray, and you get answers, and things don't turn out, and you say, why in the world did God answer the prayer that way? This is a disaster, because we don't remember that Romans 8:28, God always works out things for the good of those who love him. We just have to wait and see how things work out in this veil of tears. Moving on to Mark chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. He also appointed 12, that's Jesus, appointed 12. He also named them apostles to be with him, to send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Now the Luke parallel passage says this, And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself. So that was the next morning after he would prayed all night. And he chose, and from them he chose twelve whom he also named apostles. So let's take up this word apostles now. The term is used only twice in Mark's gospel. 
It's used in two senses, as the NIV Study Bible says. In general, the word means messenger. Apostolos is a sent one, a messenger. John 13, 16 uses the, the, the Greek word apostolos in that way. I assure you, a slave is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. So it's just in general terms as, as a messenger. However, in the sense that Jesus uses it, it's, he uses it in a technical sense. Now, this technical sense can also be divided into two further uses of the word. First of all, it could refer just to the twelve, as it does here. He says in Mark 3, verse 14, he also appointed twelve. He also named them apostles. All right, so these are the, what I call capital A apostles. They're not capitalized in the English translations, but a capital A apostles means one of the twelve. Now, some people, a lot of times, for reasons of trying to prove the canon and so forth, they'll say Paul is one of these capital A apostles. For example, in Romans 1, 1, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and singled out for, good, for God's good news. But I, ha I have a question here. How can we say Paul is the same as the original 12? I don't buy that categorization. He wasn't one of the original 12. So the, in the technical sense of apostle, meaning a servant of the kingdom of God, as opposed just to a general messenger, a sent one going out in order to establish the kingdom of God. In that technical sense, we have the original 12 capital A apostles, and then we have little a apostles, just people in general who went out and they established churches as they spread the kingdom of God. Acts 14:14, 14, 14, the apostles Barnabas and Paul tore their robes when they heard this. The apostles Barnabas and Paul. So you see Barnabas is an apostle, Paul is an apostle. Galatians 1.19, Paul says this, but I didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And James, the Lord's brother, was not one of the original apostles. He didn't believe in Jesus till, till later. So James, the Lord's brother, is called an apostle. He was someone who went out and, I'm, I'm sure, in Judea, went around and started churches in the area around Jerusalem, I suppose. Romans 16.7, greet Andronicus and Junia or Junius, some translations have, my fellow countrymen and fellow persons. They are noteworthy in the eyes of the apostles, as they were also in Christ Jesus before me. I will mention in passing here that some translations have it. They, uh, Junia is a noteworthy apostle, and since Junia has a feminine in ending, this is where feminist, evangelical feminists love to say, see there, there was a woman apostle, to which I reply, well, one, you got one woman apostle. It seems like the exception proves the rule, even if you're right and you're not, because this is perfectly good translation. They are noteworthy and noteworthy in the eye. Andronicus and Junia are noteworthy in the eyes of the apostle. If Junia is a woman, she's noteworthy in the eyes of the other apostles. But at any rate, there you see the term apostle being used not in a technical "I'm a follower of Jesus" Jesus sense, and again people who do this, scholars who want to make these apostles special and not just unnamed church planters who go around, they want to limit the writing of scripture to these two apostles. Many people who have that theory of the canon want to limit the writing of the scriptures to capital A apostles, people who were with Jesus or who had seen Jesus, in my opinion, misusing that verse in Corinthians says, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord? I have grave doubts about that because I believe that an apostle is like today's teachers, today's prophets, today's evangelists, the workers uh, in the the ministry workers mentioned in Ephesians and in 1 Corinthians 12. That these apostles are not people who write scripture; they're not people who, with Jesus. They're people sent out to establish churches and spread the kingdom. But of course, the cessationists, the killjoy 
crypto-deist cessationists who think that everything's died out in the first century, they don't buy that. So I'll leave that up to your decision. Now, these 12 apostles, Mark says, he gave them authority to send them out to preach. That means to proclaim the gospel, to try to win people into the kingdom, and to have authority to drive out demons. You notice that driving out demons has got equal billing here with preaching the kingdom because it's sort of related. But, of course, cessationists say, we don't drive out demons today. I guess they do. Who knows? I wish cessationists would cease. That's who should cease. They should cease talking because they are killing the power of Christ today in this world when we need it so badly as the church is getting ready to have its candlestick plucked out here in the United States of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now let's make a distinction between between disciple and apostle. A disciple is just a general word that means a learner. The Greek word has a root meaning of learn. A disciple is a student. As Leon Morris says, a disciple was a learner, a student. But in the first century, a student did not simply study a subject. He followed a teacher. There is an element of personal attachment in disciple that is lacking in the word student. So a disciple is somebody who follows Jesus, but he's not one of the special 12 that Jesus gave special authority to. As John Gill and Adam Clark say, the 12, the number 12 was probably chosen in reference to the 12 tribes of Israel, and that's why Jesus chose the number. Now let me give you a quote from Gill to show how 12, how many times 12 shows up in the Old Testament. Quote, the number 12 is either an allusion to the 12 spies that were sent by Moses into the land of Canaan, or to the 12 stones in Aaron's breastplate, or to the 12 fountains the Israelites found in the wilderness, or to the 12 oxen on which the molten sea stood in Solomon's temple, or to the 12 gates in Ezekiel's temple, or rather to the 12 patriarchs and the tribes which sprang from them. That as they were the fathers of the Jewish nation, which was typical of God's chosen people, so these, these twelve apostles, were to be the instruments of spreading the gospel, not only Judea, but all the world, and of planting Christian churches there. We read in Matthew 19, verse 28, Jesus said to them, I assure you, in the Messianic age, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, and I'm assuming the Messianic age is the church age now, you who have followed, not the end of the world age, but the church age now, you who have followed me, will also sit on 12 thrones. So Jesus says, hey, just like the 12 patriarchs, you should will sit on the 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So you see the close connection between the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12, and the 12 apostles. We have a transition from the old Israel to the new Israel. And, of course, my favorite, one of my favorite verses is Revelation 21:14, describing the new Jerusalem, which I take to be the new covenant, which includes all the way from AD 30 to the end of the world, not just at the end of the world, as so many people take Revelation, the new Jerusalem and Revelation 21 to be, but I don't take it that way. The, and the wall of the city had, in verse 14 says this, and the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So the foundation of the kingdom of God, the foundation of the new Jerusalem is the 12 apostles. And that, and then, of course, in, the, in that same image of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, there were 12 gates, three on each side, and on top of the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. So you see the close connection between the old kingdom of God and the new kingdom of God, the old version and the new version, 12 tribes, 12 apostles. So that that was not an accident that Jesus chose 12. He did that on purpose. I'm absolutely convinced. Now notice here the 12 apostles were not chosen out of the blue. They had already spent some time with Jesus, watching him minister, watching him drive out demons, watching him heal withered hands and people who can't walk and all that. So they had seen him work. Now 
Jesus here gave them authority over the unclean spirits to drive out demons. And I was, I'm assuming that there was healing, too, that they could do, which they hadn't done before this, I'm assuming. And so now they have authority to go do this. Now, of course, the next question is, well, what about us today? Well, it's true that the 12 disciples had authority. Does that necessarily mean that disciples today who are not the special 12, do they not have authority to go out and drive out diseases and heal? Well, I think they do. I'm waiting for a cessationist to show me a verse that says I don't or that somebody else doesn't. I mean, I've seen unclean spirits driven out by people today. Don't tell me that people don't have authority to drive out unclean spirits. I've seen diseases and sicknesses miraculously healed and have heard credible testimony from friends of mine who have prayed that such diseases and sicknesses be healed. But, of course, I'm sure it's all in my mind and I'm making it up, according to cessationists. Now let's move on to verses 16 through 19 in Mark chapter 3, and we'll see the disciples' name. Now this is one of several lists in the New Testament of the disciples, and comparing those lists could drive people crazy unless you've got a Ph.D. in New Testament, which I don't. So we're going to have to try to um, make some, get some clarity out of these names and try to figure out who's whom. Verse 16, he appointed the twelve. To Simon he gave the name Peter, and to James, the son of Zebedee, and to his brother John, he gave the name Bornerj, that is, sons of thunder. That's Aramaic there that's being translated into the Greek, which is then translated into English for us, sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Let's start out with some general observations about the twelve. Only five of them do we know much of anything about. The rest of them are sort of shadowy, and sometimes we don't even know who they are. I read a book one time called In Search of the Twelve Apostles, and I read the book, and it was so full of speculation after speculation after speculation, I said, this book hasn't helped me a bit. Here are the five that we know something about. Peter, of course, he's very famous. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, or Bornage, the sons of Thunder. They're the ones that called down fire on an unbelieving village one time, or, or wanted to. And James was executed by Herod Antipas in Acts chapter 12. And John, the son of Zebedee, wrote the Gospel of John. And he wrote the three letters of John. He wrote the book of Revelation. Judas, of course, betrayed Jesus. And Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew. So those five we're not going to worry about. So that still leaves us seven more to worry about. But first of all, before we do that, let's point out some interesting facts. Two of these disciples had diametrically opposed political viewpoints. Matthew was a tax collector hired by the Roman government, and Simon the Zealot, Simon the Zealot, he was in a party, the Zealots, that wanted to kill occupying Romans and overthrow their government. Now, can you imagine those two in the same band of disciples following Jesus? What's the application of that? It shows that Christians who normally, in the flesh, would hate each other's guts can put their differences aside and follow Jesus because he's bigger than all those differences. People who are following Jesus Jesus are very diverse because Christianity is a worldwide religion. I mean, they're believing Christian Jews and they're believing Christian Muslims. People who used to be Muslims, who used to hold to the Jewish faith, who's converted. There's even Democrats who are saved. It's hard to believe, but it's true. It is of utmost importance to meld individuals into a team on a more lo- a smaller scale here. If you're working with Christians, it takes brokenness and patience to work with people other Christians, because they're not perfect yet, they're not fully sanctified yet, they exhibit unregenerate behavior sometimes, and you got to work with all that. 
but it can be done. I mean, if Matthew and Simon the Zealot can get together and work together, anybody can. Now, before I go through the list of 12 names here and try to give us something to identify the apostles with, something we can remember, let's discuss this why the names were even given in the first place, especially since some of those names are kind of shadowy. John Gill suggests well, it's for the truth of the history, just to show that details tend to establish credibility of a history, and there's, just, there's details. And people reading these Gospels could say, yeah, I knew that. I knew James, the son of Alphaeus. I knew Thaddeus. I knew Philip. And it gives more credibility. It could have just been to honor the apostles, but I'm not sure there's that a lot of honor because the disciples point out a lot of shortcomings of the apostles. And like I said, seven of them, we don't even know who they are. Or at least, so that's not quite a, an, a motive that would apply, I don't think. Also, to help detect and exclude false apostles, John Gill says, if you know who the true ones are and they're listed in the in the Gospels and these Gospels are being read by the early churches, then they would know who the true apostles were and who the false apostles were. That makes a lot of sense. Now, before I go through listing the apostles one by one, I will point out that if you compare the three lists in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're actually fairly consistent except for one in Luke in Matthew and Mark, there's a Thaddeus. In Luke, Thaddeus is called Judas, the son of James. And so we'll assume they're the same person. Otherwise, the names are, are quite, or the same. All right, having said that, let's go, first of all, through Simon. Simon, of course, is the Jewish name for Simon Peter. Uh, his, his strict name was Simeon in Hebrew. But Simon is, according to John Gill, is his name according to the Jerusalem dialect. He was given the name Peter because Petros means rock, because Peter was going to be the rock, his confession was going to be the rock of the church upon which the church was founded. And then, of course, he was also named Cephas in Aramaic. We know about Peter. No need to talk too much about him. Now, the next disciple that's mentioned is James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, the ones that are called sons of thunder. I've already mentioned James was executed by Herod Antipas in chapter 2. 12 of Acts by the sword. John, the other brother, the son of Zebedee. Salome was probably their mother. The two fishermen that fished with Peter and his brother Andrew, they were in business together. That John wrote the Gospel of John, the three letters of John, and the book of Revelation. Next we have Andrew. He and Simon Peter were from Bethsaida. They went back to Capernaum and bought a house there and lived there with Peter's mother-in-law. Andrew was the guy that brought his brother Peter. Andrew was around in the south near Jerusalem watching John the Baptist baptize people. He found Christ, and then he went and found Peter and said, We found the Christ, and he brought Peter to Jesus. Next we have Philip. Now, Philip is the guy who brought Bartholomew. Well, it's actually in John chapter 1, Philip found Nathaniel, if you recall that. And Nathaniel said, what good can come out of Nazareth? You say you found the Messiah from Nazareth? What good can come out of Nazareth? And then Jesus looked at Nathaniel and said, "Before you are a man without guile. He was a man without guile. And Jesus said to him, before I saw you before, you were sitting under a fig tree. Sounds kind of supernatural there. And Nathaniel was so impressed that he followed Jesus, even though Jesus was from Nazareth. Now, the passages in Mark 3 and Matthew do not mention Nathaniel. They mention Bartholomew. They have Philip and Bartholomew in Mark 3, Matthew 10, Philip and Bartholomew. We go to Luke, and it says 
it says Philip and Bartholomew. So you see that couplet there, the how they're paired together. So from that, scholars deduce that Bartholomew is another name for Nathaniel. So we'll assume those two guys are the same. Next, after Bartholomew slash Nathaniel, we have Matthew. Of course, he's the guy that wrote the Gospel of Matthew. He's the tax collector. Had the big banquet with all his tax collector friends after he met Jesus. And then next is Thomas, Doubting Thomas. We know about him. Took him a week or so before he believed in the resurrection when Jesus said, Put your hands in my wounded side, Thomas, and believe. Blessed are you, you believe by seeing. Blessed are those who have believed when they have not seen. And then we have James, the son of Alphaeus. Now this guy, James, the son of Alphaeus, is also called James the Less or James the Younger. We get that from Mark chapter 15, verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene. This is looking on the crucifixion. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. That's the other, what I call the other Mary. So, now again, a lot of this is, you can always doubt some of this because the Hebrews had this terrible naming convention. They named everybody by the same name. It was hard to tell them apart. But Mary, the mother of James the Younger, is also Mary, the wife of Cleopas, or, and Cleopas is the same name as Alphaeus. And one of those, perhaps, was the one on the road to Emmaus on Resurrection Sunday Day. So, I'm going to assume all those people are identical. So, we'll just call him James, the son of Alphaeus, who is the son of one of the women who saw Jesus crucified, and also one of the women who brought spices to the grave on Resurrection Sunday. The, the son of the quote-unquote other Mary. Otherwise, we don't know too much about him. Next is Thaddeus. Now, Thaddeus, as I said, is probably the same as Jude, who is mentioned in Luke as Jude. He's also mentioned in Acts 1.13 in another list. Let me read this list in Acts 1.13. When they arrived, this is to the, up, to the upper room, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip. Peter, John is... The son of Zebedee, Peter is Simon Peter, Philip's the same all the way through. Thomas is doubting Thomas, Bartholomew slash Nathaniel, Bartholomew also known as Nathaniel, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. So we have Judas the son of James in Acts chapter 1. In Mark we have Thaddeus, and in Luke we have... Judas, the son of James. So Judas, the son of James, is in Luke, is in, in Acts. Luke wrote both Luke and Acts. He called him Judas, the son of James. The other gospel writers called him Thaddeus. I'm assuming they're the same people. Now, why they had different names, I don't know, but apparently they're the same people. All right, so this Jude, the son of James, also known as Thaddeus, how can we remember him? Well, he's probably the same as the Jude that wrote the book of Jude, the Old Testament book. He's mentioned in John 14:22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it you're going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? This is at the Last Supper. Now, some people say that he might be the Lord's brother because in Matthew 13:55 it says this, Isn't this the carpenter's son, Jesus, the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And there's a list of the first names of Jesus' half-brothers. One of them was named Judas. So people say, well, maybe this is the same Judas. Could be. All right, we've got two more to go. Simon the Zealot. This is a description of Simon's religious zeal, of course, because the Zealots were a revolutionary party of the Jews who were violently opposed to Roman 
rule, he's given the, nick, the nickname Simon the Zealot to distinguish him from Simon Peter. Now, the Zealots were so zealous that they would kill anyone immediately without a trial if they were caught in adultery or blasphemy or idolatry or theft. No trials, boom, kill you. As soon as they, they caught you in flagrante delicto with another, somebody not your wife, bang, you're gone, your history, your toast. They were subject to no court. They refused to appear in court. They were responsible for unspeakable murders and evil during the siege of Jerusalem in AD 70. So that's quite a background Simon the Zealot was converted from. Some say he was Jesus' brother because, as I mentioned in Matthew 13, 15, four brothers of Jesus listed their first names. One of them is Simon, so it could be Simon the Zealot. That's, of course, speculation. Note that in these lists of the apostles, they're listed in pairs, which is kind of interesting because they were sent out two by two. Mark 6, 7 says this. This is not at their recruitment, but this is at their commissioning. Mark 6, 7, later on, he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs. And they're listed in pairs. All right, we got one more. Last but not least, Judas Iscariot, one of the most famous apostles in all history because he's the one that betrayed Jesus. Where does the name Iscariot come from? There are lots of suggestions. The best that I've seen is the NIV study Bible note, which says that it probably means the man from Kiriath, which refers to Kiriath Hezron, as mentioned in Joshua 15, verse 25, which was a little place 12 miles south of Hebron. He's always called Judas Iscariot, says John Gill, to distinguish him from the author of the New Testament letter, that Jude, that Judas, who was probably the brother of Jesus. By the way, it's probably sort of comforting to know if you've ever been betrayed by a close worker, if somebody like Paul was betrayed by Demas or somebody does you dirty and they're real close to you, even Jesus, even Jesus' apostles had a Judas. They were betrayed from within. All right, I'm returning from my splice of Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 19, and I'm back here at Luke chapter 6 at the end of verse 16. Luke, 6 through 12, Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16 discusses the selection of the 12 apostles. Next audio, we'll start with Luke 6, verse 17, and we will take up our discussion of the Sermon on the Mount. Hope you enjoyed this audio. Talk to you next time.